This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Here you go. Here you go. Privacy. That's the nothing personal word of the day for February 4th, 2020. Privacy is exactly what the writer who did not vote for Derek Jeter wanted with his Hall of Fame ballot. As you recall, Derek Jeter made the Hall of Fame, except he was going to be unanimous like his teammate Mariano Rivera. And one guy or girl voted no. Didn't vote for him. Didn't check his name in a box. Was it a hanging chad? Was it a mistakenly placed ballot? Did he think he was signing Derek Jeter, clicking his name, and ended up clicking, I don't know, J.J. Putz's name? We'll never know because the Baseball Writers Association voted to make every ballot public, and the Hall of Fame said, no, we will not allow that. We do not agree. If a writer wants privacy, we're going to give it to him. If he wants to capitalize on the privacy, we're going to let him. If he wants to let it go, we're going to let it go. And for the rest of time, Jeter's not unanimous. You're fired. Is that how it goes when Jim Dolan fires Steve Mills? He just calls him in? When I fired people, I've done it many different ways. You can do it the regular way. We've decided to move in another direction. The nice way is, I really am so sorry about this. Never apologize when you're firing someone, but you could just say, hey, I'm really sorry, but you know, we're just not performing the way I want us to perform. We're going to move on. I think this was something a little more acute that would have caused the firing of Steve Mills today. Even Jim Dolan, who, as we know, has had a record as an owner that makes our ownership group in Miami, look much more successful than maybe it was on the field. We got a world championship, at least. Steve Mills is the president of a team that has not been in the finals since 1999. This is the New York Knicks, arguably, to me, the most important franchise in the NBA. But to fire him two days before the NBA trade deadline, what you're saying is basically that you don't trust him to engage in trade talks up to the deadline? No, that's not what Jim Dolan's saying. Are you saying that you'd rather have Perry in charge during the deadline so we're going to get rid of Mills right now? No, Jim Dolan didn't say that either. I think something acute must have happened because even Dolan, and I've worked with people and I've seen owners in many sports who can absolutely be emotional. There can be a knee-jerk reaction but only when something happens that finally is the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's no recent play by the Knicks. They're not getting more embarrassed now than they have been. They're not winning or losing fewer games this week than last week than the week before. 
There's all sorts of rumors about different deals the Knicks could be doing. The fact is, when the Knicks traded Porzingis, they thought they were going to get Durant and Irving. They may have thought it. The media was praying for it, hoped it. There was no chance of it. The Knicks know very well that the way they're structured, having players and or front office people come work for that team is going to be a small problem, especially when other people, including right now rumors in Toronto, world championship GM, president of basketball ops, wants to come to New York. There are not enough zeros in the checkbook that would get him to work for Jim Dolan. Why would he ever do it? It's the same taxes, Canadian versus New York. It's not like going to a better state like Florida or Texas. My question for the Knicks fans is this. How much longer are you going to put up with this? What power do you think you have to change the direction of the Knicks franchise? I've seen, should we boycott? Should we stop going to games at Madison Square Garden? It's not going to matter. Should you call your cable company and cancel MSG Network? Oh, we're getting a little closer. Should you boycott all sponsors that you see in the garden where you will not use their products? Nah, maybe. My point to you is it feels very powerless, doesn't it? It feels terrible that you can't control the fate of the team you love so much. There are so many passionate Nick fans, and I am one of them. And I know because I've been on the inside, there's not one thing I can do. I can't not go to games. Someone else will go to a game. If I cancel the network, doesn't matter. The fact is that Jim Dolan does not need to sell the team. And if you think that's the reason the Knicks aren't winning is that he's the owner, can owners have that much power? Yes, they can. What does Dolan do that makes it so hard for the Knicks to win? I know exactly what it is. It's simple. You're going one direction. You have a plan. You have people in place to absolutely make and implement that plan. Before the plan comes together, the owner comes in and changes it up. He doesn't have the patience, doesn't have the ability, the stick-to-itiveness is what we used to call it in Major League Baseball. To rebuild in baseball, you have to be able to stick to it, stick to the plan no matter what. Dolan keeps changing plans, can't keep a coach, can't figure out what to do with his roster. Why am I blaming him and not Steve Mills? Believe you me. I'd like to blame Steve Mills, and if he thinks back very carefully to 10 years ago, he'll know why. That said, I don't blame you, Steve. My guess is, like Tisdale, Fisdale, thank you, you'd be much happier, and you'll be much happier no longer in the Knicks organization. I assure you. Steve Mills fired by Jim Dolan and the New York Knicks. You know, one of the, uh, thank you, Coca. Coca's writing in red on my screen. I just want to point out, what, what makes my point. He just said to me that Steve Mills was on the phone negotiating trades for the Knicks yesterday, including trying to get Golden State's D'Angelo Russell. That's from Adrian, Adrian Wojnowski, who is the guru on Twitter. Why is it possible that uh, you'd have a president making trades and then fire him the next day? That just goes to exactly what I was talking about. It seems obvious to me that something must have happened. Did Steve Mills walk in and tell Dolan he didn't want him in a meeting? Did he walk in and say, I want to be in charge, not you? Did he finally say it's your fault that the Knicks have been bad? Something acute must have happened. We'll find out, I assure you. Okay, I want to talk about bets. I want to talk about Mookie Betts today. I want to explain to people what's happening. There's a frenzy of misinformation out there right now as it relates to the Boston Red Sox and Mookie Betts. I'm just going to clarify it in a quick box for you. John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, came out and said, getting under the luxury tax is not our priority. He was lying. 
John Henry came out and said, the only thing we're focused on is having the best possible 25 players because we're always trying to win. I believe that he thinks that. Chaim Bloom, the new chief baseball officer of the Boston Red Sox, came out specifically said, I have never been told what the payroll needs to be. Chaim, you know that's not true. Every single GM, president of baseball ops, chief baseball officer, I don't care what you're called, of course you know your payroll. If you don't have a payroll from the owner and you don't go to the owner and say, what's our payroll, then you are negligent as the chief baseball officer. Why do the Red Sox want to get below the luxury tax threshold? Because they're going to be in the triple penalty if they don't. It's like triple word score and Scrabble. It's really hard to find, and once you do, there's no turning back. But if you get below the threshold, you get to start over. You reset back to the first year of being over, which they could do in the 2021 season. So why hasn't he been traded yet? It can't be because Kyle Bloom is trying to hire a manager first. I've been in front offices. You can do two things at once. I know it sounds shocking. The reason why they haven't traded him yet is they're trying to figure out exactly what their appetite is for the amount of money they need to be below the salary luxury tax threshold. That's the only question they're asking. The San Diego Padres will take Mookie Betts and his $27 million, but they want to trade Will Myers and his $21 million. The Dodgers want Mookie Betts. They may be willing to take on David Price as well, but then not give the level of prospects back that the Padres are willing to give. The Red Sox are stuck in neutral right now because they can't figure out which way to go. The more money you shed, the worse prospects you get back in return. The more money you pay of the players who you're trading, the better players you get back. Just go back last offseason when JT Ralamuto was traded by the Marlins to the Philadelphia Phillies. You know very well the Marlins could have attached Wei-Yin Chen to JT. They could have made a team pay Wei-Yin Chen in his remaining $40 million. But they never would have gotten back the quality of player they did get back from the Phillies. The Marlins are rebuilding. You have to get good players back when you're rebuilding. The Red Sox should never be rebuilding. When you have that amount of revenue and that capacity for payroll, you can retool. You can never rebuild. Therefore, the focus for the Red Sox, if they want to do a quick hit, just get as low as they can, just trade Mookie Betts and you're fine. You don't need to attach David Price. You don't need the quality of player back because you've got the money to go out and get players whenever you want. Teams like the Marlins don't. They've got to get top-level prospects back when they're trading players off their Major League roster. The Red Sox are simply doing this as a money reset. Take the microphone, John Henry, like you did when you fired Alex Cora. Take it and tell us the truth. Just say, it's my money. I don't believe that we are in a position to pay triple tax. I spend a lot of money on the Fenway Sports Group. You know I own Liverpool and Roush Racing, and you know that my personal expenses are high. And I'm not apologizing for that. If I want to trade Mookie Betts, we only have one year left with him. I don't think we're as good as the Yankees, probably not even as good as the Rays. So of course we're going to trade him. What's going to happen? Are people going to protest? Are people going to stop going to Red Sox games? 
We already discussed it with the Knicks. If people stop, they'll come back as soon as you start winning. We'll see what happens with Mookie Betts. The only thing I can promise you is that he is guaranteed to be traded. And if I'm the Red Sox, I'm getting rid of his money. I don't need the highest pay players. I don't need to attach David Price the way as Marlins we would in the old days have attached other players. Bula, 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 bula. Who knows bula, bula? Anyone out there? Anyone in the CBS Sports HQ world? Yale Bulldogs? The Elis? Bula, bula? Nobody? Ah, we're talking Yale right now, and I love talking Yale. The Astros hired a Yale graduate yesterday to be their GM. That's, I'm not going to bury the lead. He's a Yale graduate, right? To me, we had a Harvard guy in our front office, Mike Hill. And we would always laugh because he was a Harvard guy, and I always preferred Yale. I'm not a Yale guy. I'm a Badger. But that's why I was never the GM or in the Rays organization. What do the Rays do here? So the guy hired is a guy named James Click. Don't need to remember that. James Click is a guy who started at Baseball Prospectus. Don't need to remember that. James Click is a young, analytic mind. Don't need to remember that. James Click comes from the Tampa Bay Rays organization. That is something to remember. How is it that the Tampa Bay Rays continue to cultivate these incredible baseball minds who then move on to work for other clubs? The list is long. Just this offseason, two members of the Tampa Bay front office became GMs, the equivalent of GMs in baseball. Chaim Bloom of the Red Sox, who we just spoke about before, and now James Click of the Houston Astros. Two takeaways. Number one, what are the Rays doing differently? What do they do in their front office where they're able to have this? We call it in football, like the Parcells coaching tree, or we call it the Greg Popovich in basketball, the coaching tree. If you've been an assistant, where you come from, where you go. There was a whole pregame on Andy Reid and his coaching tree. The Tampa Bay Rays have one of the best trees in all of baseball. When you're an analytic mind and you're coming into baseball with zero personal skills, you have zero feel for the game of baseball. You simply have a feel for paper and for applied mathematics. But the Rays do something spectacular. They make sure that their brightest minds cut their teeth at the minor league level, learn how to talk baseball with baseball coaches, baseball players. I've had conversations with some people in the game about this. It is a very small thing that never gets talked about. It's not sexy enough to be tweeted about. But when you're running a company and you are trying to build an organization and find the best minds available, it's not just about numbers or where you got your BA or BS. That's a Bachelor of Arts and a Bachelor of Science for those playing at home. It's important to understand the relationships that are required in order to build trust. When you've got old school baseball guys, you can't walk into a clubhouse, drop off a calculator and a notebook full of paper and just assume that everything's going to be okay. You've got to actually sit down and have a water with them, have a beer with them, sit down and talk about the game, learn from them, empower them to have an opinion about something. Don't automatically say that, hey, what you're seeing with your eyes is not relevant to me. I can manage an entire game and I can choose an entire team from my computer model that I've written the code for. That's not how you get to run an organization. That's how you get a job at the bottom of an organization. And what Tampa does by allowing their young guys to move up the chain, to learn how to communicate, to learn how to communicate both up to management 
coaches, and down to players. That is the key. I was always jealous of the Rays and their ability to do that. We always tried that. We always tried to find what the Rays weigh and what they were doing. What's interesting is that he took this job with Houston, and people are coming up to me and saying, wow, who would want the Astros GM job? There are about a 1,000 people just within the industry who want the Astros GM job. Do you know how many people want to manage the Marlins or be the GM of the Marlins? The same 1,000. They cheated? Oh, I can't work for that organization. Oh, they have a low payroll. I would never work for that team. It's laughable. I'm a free agent. I will never sign with a team that's not trying to win. It's all a joke. Anybody who always goes for title and money. I'm not being cynical. You go to anybody and you say you want to be in the Astros organization right now, they're not standing on their high horse or on principle. They're 100% doing it. Interesting note. James Click got a two-year deal. Dusty Baker, the manager, hired before the GM, got a one-year deal. Why is that interesting? Because when James Click gets to bring in a new manager along with his owner, Jim Crane, it will not be Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker has one year as sort of a goodbye. He's sort of riding the ship when things are tumultuous. He's going to ride out the storm, and then he's going to hand over the keys to the boat that will certainly have a lot of holes in it. Congratulations, you yelly James Click. God, people are miserable in Jacksonville. We're talking Jacksonville Jaguars now. One little report comes out, and people lose their minds. Yes, the Jaguars will be playing two games in London. History has been made. There's never been an organization in the NFL to play two of its eight games. Let's put it in perspective. That's 25% of their home schedule. In basketball, that's the equivalent of 20. No, there's 40 home games. Thank you very much. That is approximately 10 of your games gone from your home arena. 10 basketball games, 20 baseball games. You wake up one morning and your home season only has 60 games. What's the big deal, you say? Why would Shad Khan not do that, the owner? The owner of the Jaguars, who has been very unsuccessful on the field. As a matter of fact, there's an exact inverse correlation to the amount of money Shad Khan has and has made to the amount of victories that he has as the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Yes, Coca, I said an inverse correlation, not a direct correlation. Why would Khan agree, the owner of the Jaguars, to go to London for two games? Why would he be the franchise first out? This has been going on for years. They have been waiting for this moment for years. Here's the math. When you build a building the way we did in Miami with Marlins Park, part of the deal when you're getting public money is that you have to agree that only a certain number of games per year will ever be played outside of that home facility. So the Marlins negotiated that every couple years we could play in Mexico, we could play in Europe, we could play in Asia, a three-game series, never more than three games, and that would be only every couple of years. Why would that be the case? Because when you're getting public money put into a facility, you want to make sure the major tenant is there as often as possible, even when no fans are coming. Jacksonville is an interesting situation. There is nothing in their lease, is my guess, and it's available publicly, is my further guess. There is nothing in their lease 
Now you're just saying I didn't do the research before? The news just came out today. How would I even have time? I'm too busy worried about CBS Sports HQ and the studio and bringing food for people. There is definitely nothing in the lease that says there's a minimum number of games that have to be played in Jacksonville. There's no way that Khan buys the team and only gives an oral assurance to Wayne Weaver, the former owner, that he will keep the team in Jacksonville. What's the play here? Khan's play is real estate. Khan's play is asset improvement. So here's what he did. He's got an entire development that he wants to do in Jacksonville. He wants to change downtown. He handed out a three-paragraph statement while announcing that the Jaguars were moving 25% of their games to London. He starts it by saying, I want to make it very clear that our first priority is winning. Come on, Shad. Here's my statement. I would like everyone to know that my first priority is making as much money as possible. And I get paid by the NFL to go to London. And I make more money per London game than I do for a game in Jacksonville. The gate revenue, the concession revenue, all of the money that you think I make when you all come to games in Jacksonville, it's nothing compared to what I get when I'm in London. I would move to London full time if I could figure out the travel. If I could find a way to transport my players there and back, I'd be happy to do it. But I don't want you to hate me because on the other side of my life, having nothing to do with the Jaguars, I'm doing a huge development downtown. I'm going to change the face of Jacksonville. And when I do, you won't even care whether or not the Jaguars are a winning team. It won't even matter to you that I've gone 38 and 90 as an owner because I will have done something permanent that will leave a lasting legacy. Well, Mr. Khan, let me say that People view sports owners and their legacies a little differently than you think. They will remember you as the owner who let their team play 25% of the games in London and as a billionaire owner who decided to choose money over the people of Jacksonville. I couldn't agree with you more, and I couldn't be more sorry. Speaking of sorries, we're talking about uh, Kyle Shanahan here today. Kyle Shanahan, you know him as a uh, Super Bowl coach. He had a thing that happened. I want to bring you back. If you didn't watch the Super Bowl, it's fine. I'm good with that. I watched the commercials and the game. But there was a moment at the end of the first half of the Super Bowl where everyone said, and, and it's amazing the Monday morning quarterbacking that goes on. It's amazing the criticisms of coaches. It's as though everybody has the ability after the fact to go back and say, I would have done this, I would have done that. You're never wrong in the rearview mirror. We've talked about it on Nothing Personal. We've said you're like a Monday morning quarterback. Hindsight, 2020. Mike, Mike Shanahan's his dad, Super Bowl winning coach. Kyle Shanahan learned under Mike. At the end of the first half, he had three timeouts left. He was getting the ball back after a three and out by Kansas City. His defense had a great set of downs. They get the ball back. But instead of calling a timeout after third down on defense, he doesn't. The clock goes from like a minute 40 to 59 seconds. He then basically sits on the ball, goes to the half tied at 10. He is getting crushed for that. I absolutely agree with what he did. 10-10, when you have a chance to actually keep the Chiefs at 10 points, your defense is playing well, let it go. What I saw, though, on TV was shocking. Because normally they won't show you what happened. John Lynch is Kyle Shanahan's boss. John Lynch, former player is the GM of the San Francisco 49ers. He's the one we talked about on yesterday's show, came down to the field ready to celebrate, and then sort of went back to the background when he realized his team was going to lose. 
John Lynch stood up in his suite and started motioning for a timeout. If you're watching this, you see what I'm doing. I'm put, calling for a timeout by putting my hand in the, T, in the T formation. If you're listening, I do appreciate that you are, but that's what I'm doing. John Lynch wanted Shanahan to call a timeout. John Lynch was vociferous in his momentary criticism of what Shanahan did. Is it rare for a team executive to show that type of emotion while a game is going on? Let me give you an imitation of me during Marlins games. Game's happening. Man on first and second. Starting pitcher has 107 pitches. We're in the sixth inning. No outs. Lefty coming up. And there's no one up in the pen. I'm losing my mind because I have a list of players, pitchers, who are available in the pen. I know the exact order that we're going to these pitchers. I know what we said the pitch count would be for the pitcher. I am absolutely aware of what the plan for that game was. Scripted. It's in front of me. Why is there not a player up? Why are we not warming up someone in the bullpen? That is a legitimate insider information reaction to something that goes on during a game. Football is different. There's plenty of analytics. They script out the first, let's say, 20 plays of a game. All of that is fine. However, there are certain things going on in a football game where actual feel still matters. Now, I'm hearing in my ear, I hear it. Yes, I do. I hear baseball managers saying to me, hey, in baseball, there's a lot of feel. There's momentum. I definitely use my eyes much more than I use analytics. I hear you, but it's not like football. In football, at the end of a game with clock management, it's very difficult to rehearse every possible eventuality. Now, you're going to say you can not rehearse every eventuality in baseball? Please just think about what I'm saying. Think about all the different things in baseball that I prepared before a game, that I saw before a game, that our GM would do, that we'd talk to the manager about. We would talk about big leads, small leads, when we're down one or two runs, up one or two runs, available pitchers, pinch, <coughs> pinch hitters, excuse me. Excuse me. We would talk about, yes, that was not a sneeze, but I appreciate the God bless you that didn't come in my ear. We would talk about all sorts of plays that are pretty common. In football, there's no way they can go down to the level of under a minute, great first half tied at 10, defense makes a play three and out, you get the ball back, what do we do? And you have three timeouts left. I don't believe they went into that level of detail. If they had, John Lynch would have been able to tell Shanahan what they're going to do in that situation. And then Shanahan would have to do it. The way Lynch was reacting, very surprising for a GM to show that amount of emotion when you know. When you're watching a game as a, as a president of a team, by the way, or a GM, no matter where you are in the stands, the cameras are on you. I would try to hide in the bleachers sometimes and sit in the bleachers. Now, I know what you're saying at Marlins games, you can't hide because I'd be sitting alone. But there are stadiums on the road, sit in the bleachers in, in Wrigley Field, let's say, or sit in the green monster seats at Fenway, trying to just blend in. Cameras find you, especially now when everybody has a camera. Everybody's looking at you, for you. John Lynch doing that, showing up his coach in that way, I didn't like it. And that matters more to me than any of the second guessing or any of the fans calling for the fact that Shanahan's a loser. 
They're calling him a loser because he was the offensive coordinator for Atlanta when they blew a 28-3 lead. Calling him a loser because he was the head coach for a Super Bowl team with a 20-10 lead in the fourth and couldn't close it. Not a loser. Shanahan's a winner. A complete winner. That's like saying Andy Reid, the coach of the Eagles and now the Chiefs, is only a winner because he finally won a Super Bowl. All you people who tell me that Dan Marino's a winner, under that theory, he can't be a winner. No rings. Patrick Ewing, Charles Barkley, Andre Dawson. The list goes on of people with no rings. That doesn't make them losers. Shanahan's a complete winner. It's going to be interesting to see how he and Lynch deal with that and deal with next year. Okay, last night I had a plan to watch a movie, and I had a plan yesterday to review my top five football movies. When we didn't get to the review, I was then going to do it today. But I got back last night after the show, and I turned on Netflix just to see what could be out, what's new, and there she was staring me in the face. Taylor Swift looking right at me. A new documentary called Miss Americana. An 89-minute love story about Taylor Swift and the problems she's had and the life she's had and the glory that, through which she lives. Three takeaways. One, she travels by private plane. Two, she writes her own songs. Three, she had an eating disorder. You know what never occurred to me? When I was looking at Taylor Swift when she was younger and seeing the outfits she was wearing, I didn't realize that she had an eating disorder. And then when you look at her now, you see that she's completely changed. She was a size zero, and now she says she's a size six. And she talks about the way her brain speaks to her. When she looks at a picture and sees a little bit of a tummy or sees sort of a large behind. In the old days, she would then say to herself, I'm not going to eat. Now she says, I'm turning that part of my brain off. I'm not allowing pictures of me to dictate more unhealthy ways of living. Very, very interesting part of the show. The most interesting part of the documentary for me was her decision to become political. Taylor Swift was famous. Taylor Swift was famous as the popcorn girl, right? Everyone loved her, never said anything. She was a little bit like Michael Jordan and Derek Jeter in that they're never gonna give an opinion. They're never gonna take a stand. Why? Because they never want to put into jeopardy their ability to make money. Don't tell me that's not the reason why Jeter and Jordan and Taylor Swift don't talk. It's exactly the reason. But then something changed. Taylor Swift is from Nashville, Tennessee, and two years ago, three years ago now, there was a run for Senate where there was a woman running for a role in in the Senate to be a senator, a very serious Republican who didn't represent the Christian values that Taylor Swift had. What they don't say in the documentary is Taylor Swift was not up and coming at this time. She now had all the money in the world. She could keep living her kind of life. What was very telling is in the documentary when she decided to finally take a stand, make her opinion known. Wouldn't you know it? Her advisors said you shouldn't do it. Her advisors said, do you want to play in a concert with a stadium half full? Her PR rep said, you really want to go through this? You want to take a stand? And Taylor Swift looked at them, looked at them, cried, and said, I can't be quiet anymore. I didn't know one thing about Taylor Swift. I have great respect for her that she was willing to look at her parents, to look at her PR reps, to look at her record company, and say, you know what? I'm turning 30 years old. I've lived a very full life in front of the cameras. I've had depression. I've had all sorts of issues that you all have. All I ever want to do is have people like me. 
She was the set. She was really a reincarnation of Sally Field. You like me today. I know you really like me. Taylor Swift wants to be loved. All of her music is just about getting appreciated and getting recognition. She finally decided to take a stand. Watch this documentary. It's only 129 minutes of your life. It's interesting to see her process. It's interesting to see that, you know what? When we put these people on pedestals, we idolize athletes, we idolize singers. It turns out they've got the same issues we do, except they're under a magnifying glass. Speaking of a magnifying glass, uh, I want to give props out to Katie Sowers. Uh, Katie Sowers is a, uh, the offensive assistant for the San Francisco 49ers. We talked about her. She's the first openly gay uh, and woman, too. The first woman assistant coach and the first openly gay coach, open, I say, uh, in the National Football League. So wouldn't you know it, she sent a tweet congratulating the Kansas City Chiefs on their Super Bowl victory. Turns out that she also had to say something else in the tweet, and that's what I want to touch on today. She had to say that uh, she quoted Ellen DeGeneres. That's no secret why she would quote Ellen DeGeneres, because Ellen has a lot of good things to say and is probably a role model to Katie, as she should be, role model to many. She quoted Ellen DeGeneres and said, please, people, be kind. Do you know the hatred and the visceral attacks that she was getting publicly And I say publicly because I view social media as public. We all do it, right? When you have a public account on Twitter or Instagram, you are public. It doesn't matter if you're a celebrity, A-list, B-list, or F-list. When you allow anybody to see what you say, what you do, you are inviting people into your life, which is what causes people to only show certain parts of their life. Did you ever wonder why everyone looks happy on social media? Have you ever come across anyone in real life who's actually as happy as their social media account? Have you ever come across anyone who's actually as mean and angry as they can be when they can hide behind the keyboard and have this amazing dose of cyber courage? The truth is that what Katie Sowers had to do was address something that is impacting our world right now, and there is no end in sight. The world we live in and will continue to live in will have this amount of impersonal personal contact. It will allow people to give an opinion only because they have one. Not because they thought about it, not because they have the right to be heard, but because they have one. That's the power of the media. So Katie Sowers has been subjected to the unbelievable prejudices of this country. Unbelievable. Do you know why you should be angry with Katie? One reason only. Because your team lost and that you couldn't find a way to get a first down when you needed it, you couldn't find a way to keep the ball, and you couldn't come back when you were down just four. I'm good with that. Let's criticize the play calling. Let's take a look at what she did as coach. I couldn't give a rat's ass that she's gay or a woman. Literally. It means zero to me. But if she's calling the wrong plays, I want people to let her know that. If there's a way to use the people in a better way, your players then it's up to Shanahan and it's up to Sowers to make it better. But now we're making a coach come out publicly and have to talk about the amount of hatred that she's getting. We talked about it in this show before. It drives me crazy, the death threats. People get death threats. I told you I've gotten them. It's, it's horrible. It's horrible for your family. It feels terribly because you're sort of looking around, worried. 
You really want to kill someone over the Niners losing a game? Or kill someone because she's gay or a woman? Do you feel that badly about your own life or yourself? Are you that miserable a person? It's crushing to me, infuriating to me. Katie, I'm sorry you had to go through that. I really am. Okay, so we do a segment called So You Want to Talk to Samson. I love this segment. Uh, Go on Twitter at David P. Samson. Yes, I'm public, which is why I'm okay. If you want to give me an opinion of things I'm doing wrong on the show or correct things, I try. Yesterday we corrected Twisted Sister because someone DM'd me at David P. Samson. I'm totally fine with it. I want you to have an opinion. I want you to think about it, though. I hope this show gives you something to think about. I appreciate when you download and subscribe. I appreciate when you follow me on Twitter. And I appreciate your views and your questions. I got a great So You Want to Talk to Samson from someone yesterday, or whenever it was. The question was, how involved was I in creating a government relations strategy? Did I work directly with lobbyists or hire them and let them be? Well, people, you're going to be pretty shocked at this answer. So here's what lobbyists are in government relations. Every team has one. Every league has an entire department that's focused on dealing with the politicians, both locally, statewide, and in Washington. Every single team has a government relations employee. Their only job, him, her, doesn't matter. Their sole job is keeping track of the elected officials and making sure if there's any problems, this person will be the first line of defense before they have to go to the team president, like me, and say, hey, we've got a problem in District 7. You're going to have to go make a speech. You're going to go have to make a, a visit. You're going to have to do something. We've got a situation in Washington. We've got some legislation on the Hill. You're going to have to go meet with some senators or some people in the House. Hey, we've got something in the state legislature. This will impact us. I'm sorry, Stu. Stu, a longtime loyal listener, wants to know why everything comes down to money. He knows the answer. Why do we have government relations departments? Because when there is going to be legislation that negatively impacts us, we want it changed. And I don't mean impacts us from a social standpoint. Do you think we're up there lobbying for Roe v. Wade? No. We have an opinion about it. We're dead serious about it. But that doesn't impact our bottom line. We are up there when it comes to small, minute sales tax issues. When it comes to exclusions or exceptions that sports teams can have or share. When it comes to allocation of tourist dollars. When it comes to ways to get rid of certain taxes, property taxes. All sorts of little things that you literally, your eyes glaze over. Schoolhouse Rock, I'm just a bill. I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Please tell me you know Schoolhouse Rock. Well, if you've read a bill that's sitting there on Capitol Hill, you know that bills are very long. We are professionals at getting things put into bills that no one even focuses on. We get it voted on, and it's right there made into law. Yes, it is. And people don't even know what happened. You think I'm going to trust that to someone else? I did it myself. I was the lobbyist. We had people who worked in government relations. We had a firm who I would talk to from time to time. Good people. We did it differently than the owners before us in Florida. Wayne Huizinga, rest in peace. Very wealthy, couldn't get a ballpark done. John Henry, now the owner of the Red Sox, we've talked about him, couldn't get a ballpark done. They hired every lobbyist known to mankind. They had people on the payroll, everybody, both sides of the aisle, Anyone, Tallahassee, Washington, locally in Florida, Miami, everywhere. We came in in 2002, fired them all. 
I still have enemies in Miami because we fired people who were on a gravy train. I got rid of the gravy train. When I wanted something to be done, I was willing to say it myself. When I wanted public money for a public-private partnership, when I was interested in what was going on in Washington, anything that was going on in Tallahassee, I wanted state tax money for a ballpark, anything. I wanted to be the messenger. I didn't trust anyone to have my interests in mind solely. I didn't trust anyone to understand the issues the way I understood them. I didn't trust anybody to want it as much as I wanted it. Didn't always get it, never got state money, certainly did get local money. Had a lot of success, a lot of interesting times in Washington. But this question about what I would do, how involved was I in creating the government relations strategy, completely. Because I'm the one who had the strategy of the team. I knew exactly what was going on with our team, what we were trying to do. And then I would work with professionals and say, this is what I want done. And I'm the one who's going to be the messenger, but I'm happy to talk about message points with you. I was always happy to talk to people, learn what's the best way to talk to this person. This person doesn't like baseball, but likes hockey. Don't forget to mention that what you want will help the hockey team. This person doesn't like sports at all, but is very focused on minority hiring. No problem. We'll talk about the level of minority hiring that we will do once we get this money. You know what every person wants. Do you think there's something wrong with that? Do you think that... I should feel slimy? I don't. Should I feel apologetic? No. Think about the way you live your life. Do you not spend every day trying to get something from someone? Trying to get them to go with what you want to do? Something as small as where you're going to have dinner tonight? Your job is to know the type of food that your significant other wants and then to try to get him or her to do what you want to do. That happens every day. It happens at work. Are you not trying to get ahead? Are you not trying to sell more than the guy next to you? Are you not trying to make more money than the girl next to you? Do you not want a bigger title? Do you not know that you have to deal with your boss in a certain way to get what you want? You need to help your boss. We've talked about it when we talked about how to interview. I'll never apologize for learning exactly what needs to be done to accomplish what I want to get done. As a matter of fact, I've told you one of my leadership strategies, the best way to lead anybody is to make people think that it's their idea when in fact it was always your idea. I never cared about who got credit for anything because at the end of the day, I knew I had won. I didn't need to hear people say, oh, you're right. Oh, we'll do this for you. It was music to my ears when a politician would say, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for my constituents. That's all I needed to hear. So I'm the one who would come up with the strategy. I was the lobbyist. I actually had to register as a lobbyist and did. Let him be. You can never hire someone and just let him be. In the real world, in sports, we want that of our owners. We talked about it with Jim Dolan. Hire somebody, just let him be. <laughs> no. Okay, pick of the day. Um, I, I admit it, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I did not realize, and it was too late. I was told by people here, Ruben told me, he said the Philadelphia 76ers were at the Super Bowl. I thought, because Coca didn't tell me any differently, which is his job, I thought that the Sixers would never have spent the Super Bowl night in Miami. Of course they're going to go to the game and go out. That whole team had the South Beach Super Bowl flu. It was a disgraceful pick, and I apologize. Today, we're going Spurs plus a Baker's dozen. 
versus the Los Angeles Lakers. I'm putting my 500 record on the line here. Why am I going with against the Lakers? Not not on the money line. I'm going. I want the points. I just remember our team when we had a play after Jose's death. There was such emotion the first game, and then sort of it puffs out of you. So I had a whole theory, and then Ruben says to me, by the way, this is their third game. They manhandled, I think he said the Kings, and I think he used the verb manhandled. So therefore, they're not even thinking about it anymore. LeBron's not even looking at the big tattoo anymore. You're past it. And I said, well, wait a minute. Should I take the Lakers? He said, wait, you're getting a Baker's dozen? We're taking the Spurs and the points. Okay. Wait to see. Do you know we measure everything on these pods, and we measure how long people are listening. I want to thank everyone because our retention rate is amazing. People are listening to full shows, but sometimes they get cut off like at the 43rd or 44th minute. So I'm wondering if you don't like the wait to seize, make sure you get to me at David P. Sampson. If you don't, I thought that it was an important thing we do, giving accountability, letting you know when I'm right and when I'm wrong. We said the Super Bowl ratings would be slightly up from last year. That was an amazing call by us. Do you know the Super Bowl ratings have gone down four years in a row? The total viewership has gone down four years in a row. And we called, we, even without the Patriots, we called an uptick, reversed the trend, and we got it. It was slight, but in wait-to-see parlance, it does not matter. We were absolutely right. Okay, my wait-to-see today, I'm doubling down on a wait-to-see, which is something I've never done. And I'm getting on John Henry a bit here. My wait-to-see again, I told you last week that if we don't hear anything public by Monday— from the Red Sox, that they're keeping bets, it means they're trading them. They've got to put an end to this crazy speculation. You take the microphone and say, we are not trading Mookie Betts the way the Rockies did with Nolan Arenado. They didn't do it Monday. That means Betts is going to get traded. But I'm doubling down because that was just a wait to see. I'm going again with a wait to see. I'm now saying Betts will get traded, having nothing to do with the Monday silence. It's two different wait to sees, Coca. Betts gets traded. Believe it. And he'll go to another team, whether they can win or not. He'll look back at his years in Boston and say, hey, it was always business. It was nothing personal. 